Hello and welcome to Asia in Depth. I'm Matt Schiavenza. In just two years, the entrepreneur and businessman Andrew Yang has come out of nowhere to become, arguably, one of the best-known politicians in the United States. His long-shot campaign for president in 2020, based around the idea of a universal basic income, amassed a large following. Now running for mayor of New York City, he is considered a top contender for the Democratic nomination. We wanted to speak with Andrew Yang because of his roots. Yang is the son of Taiwanese immigrants, and in the past few years, he has become one of the most prominent Asian Americans in public life. His candidacy for mayor is occurring at a moment when racist and xenophobic attacks against Asians in New York and across the United States have surged, sparking widespread fear and outrage. In this episode of Asia In-Depth, we hear from Andrew Yang about the challenges faced by Asian Americans in the age of coronavirus and what he thinks might be done about those challenges from the worlds of politics and business both. Yang spoke with Kevin Rudd, Asia Society President and CEO and, as former Prime Minister of Australia, a person who knows a thing or two about elections. Rudd begins the conversation. Andrew, your um, career is uh, known to most of the folks uh, who will be uh, watching this particular presentation and broadcast, so I won't go into it. Must have taken some guts to put your hand up to become um, the Democratic uh, candidate uh, for the presidency of the United States. Tell me about that decision. That must have been an interesting one. Yes, it was 2017, and Donald Trump had just won the presidency. And like many Americans of any background, I was surprised and shocked at his victory and thought, well, how did this happen? And I concluded that it had happened largely because we had automated away millions of manufacturing jobs in Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, these swing states that all went to Trump. And I did not believe that for whatever reason, our political figures uh, or media institutions were talking about that economic transformation that I believed was going to get more and more uh, severe and extreme. And so when I looked at how I could advance meaningful solutions, it was a very, very short list. Uh, and I concluded that running for president, believe it or not, because Kevin, this doesn't make any sense, but running for president seemed like the most logical thing to do, <laughs> even though it was uh, a highly ambitious endeavor that even my friends uh, tried to talk me out of some of them. Uh, and, you know, they were good friends. They were trying to help. Uh, but uh, I, I believe very strongly that I could advance both a sense of where we are as a society and what we can do better. Uh, and I'm so thrilled that our campaign grew to the scale it did and had the impact that it's had. Well, yeah, it's, uh, it takes a lot of guts to do these things. And you're right. When you put your hand up for political office, you got a group of friends who say, that's a great idea. Then your really close friends say, that's a really crazy idea. Um, and then you've got to actually march to the beat of your own drum and to do what you think is right. But um, uh, all power to your arm, given that um, uh, it's gutsy to stand up as an Asian American and run for the number one office uh, in the United States of America. So you're now running here in New York. Um, and um, how's your energy levels holding up in the campaign? Uh, my experience of political campaigning is it uh, one month out? Uh, it's uh, it's starting to get uh, pretty exhausting. Hey, Kevin, did you run for office? Is that what happened? It, it sounds like you can relate. Uh, <laughs> though, uh, 
Though, though in my case, there's been one extraordinarily positive development, which is that as we've gotten closer to election day on June 22nd, the weather has gotten a lot better. Because yeah. if you can imagine campaigning during the winter or during COVID, that was uh, very disembodied and not a lot of fun. Um, so now when you're out and about, the city feels much more vibrant and alive. And uh, so that's very energizing. Uh, you know, it's hard not to be energized on a day like today. Well, exactly. Uh, even though I'm, I'm joining you from Australia, I've been living in New York the last five or six years. And uh, I've got to say, it's, uh, it's good to hear and sometimes see the return of the beginnings of normality uh, in Manhattan and elsewhere across the boroughs. So tell me, um, one of the things we're doing here at the Asia Society, uh, Andrew, is uh, working on the whole question of uh, racism against Asian Americans. Uh, for example, one of the campaigns I've launched is um, Asian Americans Building America, which is just interviews with uh, folks who are doing extraordinary things from running a restaurant to running a bank to uh, to um, Leroy Chow, the uh, uh, Chinese-American, Asian-American astronaut, and telling these stories. What's your own experience of, uh, of racism? Uh, I'd really like to hear that. I think it's good for our audience to hear. How about Asian-American mayoral candidate or Asian-American possession? No, I'm, I'm <laughs> uh, where was I when, when subjects were selected? Uh, well, I, I, I've been... Asian my whole life in America and anyone who's had that experience has uh, experienced uh, a fair amount of racism. Uh, certainly when I was a kid, it was uh, quite routine um, to be called uh, gook or uh, ching chong or, uh, you know, whatever the childhood epithet was. Um, and uh, and as you get older, it, it morphs into something a little bit different. Um but for an Asian American man, I think that you feel like your masculinity and Americanness are both often in question. Uh, and there's also a sense that you're kind of invisible in certain settings and environments. And Kevin, I have to say that becoming recognizable on the street was a massive shift for me uh, as a person, where during the campaign in 2019, I just started getting recognized on the street all the time when, uh, and my, my wife was like, we can't take you anywhere because anywhere we went then, you know, like people started uh, buzzing around or wanting photos. And I confess to being completely bewildered by that experience because as an Asian man, you're kind of used to being able to blend into the woodwork at will. Uh, and, uh, and losing that ability uh, was a significant adjustment for me. You must have also been impressed by, um, I mean, I, I listened very carefully to what you said about the racial epithets, um, and um, I'm Australian, so we have had almost a parallel experience in the United States on these questions. Um, look, if you see, I'm not an Asian uh, Australian. My, granddaughter's, uh, my granddaughter is Chinese Australian. Um, my little grandson is Chinese Australian. So I'm, my radar is always very keenly um, wired to any evidence of this stuff anywhere. Uh, have you seen in America at large, I'm talking about New York, America at large, the trend line getting a whole lot worse in the last 12 months because of COVID? Give me your uh, own reflections on that. The last 15 months have been generally disastrous for Asian Americans and our sense of place here, uh, where the first time someone shrinks away from you uh, or uh, seems to 
uh, glare at you a little bit too long and you think, well, maybe that was in my head. Uh, but then when it happens the third, fourth, fifth time, or when my wife gets told, uh, get away from me with whatever disease you're carrying, even though she has, uh, she looks absolutely healthy. You know, like w- when things like this happen, you know, it does uh, speak to the fact that Asian Americans, in my opinion, have gone from being kind of invisible uh, to being quite visible, but uh, the object of a degree of uh, repugnance um, or, or animosity. And that's a terrible feeling. It's a terrible sense. Um, I believe that has happened throughout the country because of the coronavirus and its association uh, with people of Asian descent. Yeah, I mean, my experience of this uh, United States is that when um, Trump began uh, throwing around the term the Kung flu, uh, this just was um, a real um, signal to uh, a pretty ugly uh, element in American society to kind of go for it. Um, And uh, my experience with my friends in the United States, and given I've lived there for so many years now, is that this really gave some sort of legitimization to people's ability to hurl racial abuse. So um, uh, for those of us um, who um, are deeply involved in the lives and work of Asian Americans, our sense of solidarity is with you right now uh, in this important juncture in American history. Turning to the practical and the positive side, um, Andrew, in terms of uh, what you do about racism uh, in the, the, um, let's call it the real world of American politics and life, whether it's nationwide or in New York, uh, tell me how you, what sort of actions actually matter to change the dial, that is to move this in a fundamental direction for good. Uh, we talk about uh, the problem, but I'm, I'm into solutions territory as well as president of the Asian Society. Your reflections on that I'd find really, really valuable. I was profoundly touched when a uh, firefighter uh, who is Italian-American came up to me and said, I hope that you win because I think it would speak to the kind of city that New York is that we'd elect uh, an Asian-American as mayor for the first time. I heard the same thing from uh, a black man in New York. Uh, And that's very, very touching. It has struck me, Kevin, what a powerful signal it would be to have the first Asian American mayor of the city and then have millions of people fly into JFK or drive uh, into New York City and say, welcome to New York, Mayor Andrew Yang. Uh, I'm not sure how much more of a symbol you could imagine in terms of cementing the place of Asian Americans uh, in New York. And that's the kind of thing I'd like to see happen around the country. Uh, I just saw a study that said that Asian Americans are the most underrepresented community in the United States in terms of elective office, which surprised me somehow. But then I realized it's because I probably know most all of the elected officials of Asian American descent. And so because I know them, I think, well, there aren't that few of them. Um, But then when you look at the numbers, it turns out that uh, we are woefully underrepresented. In New York City, as one example, we're approximately 15% of the population. There are 51 city council members. So you would expect there to be seven or eight Asian uh, city council members. And instead there are two. Uh, so that, that's one example that most people can understand. Um, but when you look at solutions in terms of transforming or advancing the way Asian Americans are perceived in America or in New York, uh, I do think that elective office is one 
uh, one mechanism uh, to represent who belongs here and who's American, who's a New Yorker? I think uh, yeah, there's, a, there's a lot of wisdom in this uh, observation. Fortunately, in the Asian society, we've been enormous beneficiary of so many prominent um, Asians and Asian Americans helping our work out co-chair is always from Asia, the President Heng-Chi Chan based in Singapore. Uh, in New York, our vice uh, chair is uh, Lulu Wang and, uh, and, uh, and uh, her wonderful husband, Tony. These folks are intimately involved in everything we do, but elected office um, is really important. I remember based on what you just said, Andrew, uh, when I became Prime Minister of Australia, um, that uh, my first decision was to appoint a Penny Wong as our Minister for Climate Change in that government. Uh, and this was the first time we'd ever had an Asian Australian in a cabinet position. Uh, this was um, a really important step forward. And I've noticed since then the number of Asian Australians entering the national parliament has increased. So I think what you're saying is right. It's kind of the legitimization of being a candidate and then being in elected office, which normalizes it for everybody. So um, again, well, thank you for appointing uh, Penny. Thank you for appointing uh, someone to help blaze the trail, uh, Kevin. Because as soon as someone saw it, be like, "Oh, that makes sense." Uh, you know, Asian Australian, sure. <laughs> there were more of them, but it takes someone like you to to help uh, make it happen at first. Tell me about schools. I mean, um, in the United States, uh, schools are um, combination of um, state and local government or responsibility, depending on where you are. And so obviously there's a federal impact as well. What can we do in school systems across the United States to deal with this uh, in a positive way with this whole challenge of racism uh, against uh, racism in general? African-Americans experience uh, this um, fundamentally for such a long period of time. But in the current challenges with Asian-Americans, have you got any reflections on what uh, the school system can be doing that it's currently not doing? One thing I've heard, which I agree with, and I'm sure most of the people in Asia society agree with, uh, is that our history should be more reflective of the contributions that different communities have made to American history, including the Asian American community. Um, that could be uh, a real step forward in people having a different sense of what American means and, uh, you know, and, and the role that people have had. Um, I, I do think, though, that the, the racism... Um, that we're seeing against the Asian American community, uh, I don't think will be fundamentally addressed by um, improving our history books, though I want to do that. I mean, I, I think that's necessary. Um, but if you look at the big picture, we are seeing, and you all, I'm sure, are working on this very hard, um, but we are seeing uh, a more fraught relationship between the U.S. and China um, and that there are more and more people that feel like China is uh, a rival uh, or uh, a long-term even adversary. Um, and, and I think that's going to end up driving some of the racism that people will experience here in the U.S. Uh, of Chinese-American and Asian-American descent. Uh, and it's something that I was fearful of, I have been fearful of for years, uh, and I certainly did not see the coronavirus coming, but uh, I, I made a speech that talked about how I, I imagined that anti-Asian racism would surge in the event of a new Cold War between the U.S. and China. Um, and now I think the coronavirus has unfortunately accelerated aspects of that dynamic um, uh, and brought it very close to home for a lot of Americans. 
Yeah, I think that's a pretty keen observation. The irony, of course, with a candidate like you is if I've read your CV correctly, uh, your parents come out of Taiwan. They don't come out of mainland China. Am I right? Um, and, I mean, uh, that, that's accurate. But uh, as you can imagine, um, you know, most people aren't really going to be drawing those sorts of distinctions. No, I was talking to a guy uh, running uh, an Indian restaurant in San Francisco the other day as part of our Asian Americans Building America program. And uh, he's personally being blamed for the coronavirus. So um, go, go figure that in terms of uh, your own experience. Uh, tell me, when did your folks uh, come out from Taiwan uh, to, uh, to the United States? And uh, where, where have you grown up yourself? What part of America? They met as students at UC Berkeley. My father was getting his PhD in physics. My mother was uh, getting her master's in statistics. Uh, they met and then my brother was born in San Francisco. He's named after the Lawrence Observatory at Berkeley. Uh, we used to joke that maybe my parents had a really good time there, but I'm sure they didn't. They were pretty, you know, boring uh, grad student types. Uh, and then they, they moved to Schenectady, New York, where I was born. My father worked for GE as a physicist, and then he moved to IBM uh, in Yorktown Heights, New York, um, and worked there for, uh, for you know, decades. And uh, that's where I grew up. I grew up in Schenectady and then in Westchester County in New York State, so outside of New York City. You and I know where Westchester County is these days. So, um, so uh, yeah, I bet a lot of people do. <laughs> you don't you, you don't get you, you don't get much more local than that so um we, we get it the um interesting the taiwan connection i studied in taiwan as a student myself that's where i learned chinese at taiwan normal university and and uh, back then it's kind of interesting watching taiwan's transformation i'm old enough to remember what taiwan was like in the days of martial law before it democratized and uh and when you look at Taiwan in the last 20, 25 years, there's this amazing uh, outburst of democratic sentiment and democratic uh, political realities and peaceful transition between administrations of the KMT and the DPP in Taiwan. It's kind of remarkable, the power of that democratic um, transformation in the island. I don't know if you've been back there much, but it's just the, um, the, uh, the yearning for, uh, for democracy has been, has been great. My family is there now. Uh, I went back there once a year until I ran for president. And I knew, I was like, I'm not going to be able to go to Taiwan for a while. Um, you know, I'll, I'll be uh, traveling Iowa and New Hampshire and Ohio and the rest of uh, the country. Um, so I, I visited. It was like my last visit, Kevin. I thought to myself, this is going to be my last visit for a while. So I, I went back in uh, the holiday season of 2017. Uh, I brought my then four-year-old uh, uh, with me. So it was just me and him. And I, I'll actually share this story, Kevin, because it's pretty funny. So I was there with my family, uh, my aunts and uncles uh, and parents in Taiwan at a Chinese restaurant in Taipei. Um, and I said, hey, when I go back to the States, I'm going to run for president. And, uh, and you can imagine their uh, incredulity because they don't even know if I'm serious. I'm just like, I'm going to run for president. They're like, okay. <laughs> you know? um, but but I, I knew that was going to be my last trip for quite some time. And I haven't been back since then because uh, I've been uh, campaigning for either president or mayor, essentially. Um, um, so it's been busy, but I'd love to get back. And I have many family members there that I would love to see. Are they from Taipei or from um, elsewhere in the, in the country? Uh, they are uh, from outside Taipei. My, my parents live in a suburb called Yangmei. Okay. 
Yeah, I lived there for a while, and uh, it's uh, it's actually a beautiful island uh, for those of us who've had the opportunity to spend time there. Question from uh, some of our folks watching this um, uh, broadcast, Andrew, is um, question for Andrew Yang. Uh, what can business leaders do to help counter the racism against Asian Americans? That's a phenomenal question. Uh, I think you want to look at it on like the um, personal and the institutional level. So on a personal level, if you're Asian American, uh, the best advice I can share is something that someone else said to me, which is just greet someone who you wouldn't ordinarily greet that would be surprised by it. Uh, because then if you're an Asian American person who's like being friendly to, to like the, the um, random uh, passerby or whatnot, then they'll be like, oh, like, you know, that was sort of unexpected. Um, that will be helpful. Um, if you're a business leader and you want to have an impact at, at a higher level, I think investing in, uh, in arts and creativity that help uh, amplify the Asian American experience is positive. I do think investing in political candidates and campaigns that can elevate Asian Americans is very positive. I've had a proclivity to support Asian American candidates before I was one. <laughs> I don't know how many of you share that. Uh, you know, what's funny is I, I had a list of life's goals that my wife saw before we got married and it said elevate one political candidate um, and it wasn't become one. And so she didn't think I was going to, to you know, end up doing this. Um, but if you can find figures and artists to elevate and support uh, who are diverse or Asian American, I think that's very positive. One of the things we're thinking of doing at the Asian Society is what can we do to, um, frankly, bring out some music and song awards for interesting new creative product. Um, I, I, uh, I also want to segue, in, sorry about this, Kevin, I just had a, a really profound thought for that questioner that I, I wanted to share. Uh, there are two basic impulses in, in the human soul or the human psyche. Um, the first is a sense of abundance, which is that good times are ahead. If you do well, that probably helps me too. Uh, there's more than enough to go around, uh, optimism, confidence. And then there's a, an attitude of scarcity, which is uh, we have to make sure and get ours. If something is good for you, it's bad for me. Um, uh, you know, I, I have to, to preserve my own self-interest first. And you have to ask yourself, which one of those two is winning right now in American life? Uh, and uh, I would say it's pretty clear it's a sense of scarcity. It's that a lot of people are driven by that sense of scarcity. And when you have that sense of scarcity, that mindset of scarcity, racism, particularly towards Asian Americans, uh, will rise and be rampant. Like the most fundamental way you can actually address what's driving racism towards Asian Americans in the United States is to replace a mindset of scarcity with a mindset of abundance, with the fact that, look, if Asian Americans are doing well, it's fine with you. Uh, you know, like there's more than enough to go around. Uh, there are common problems that we can solve that we all care about. Um, that's what I tried to, to do and elevate with my campaign. Um, and, and that's what I think we need country like around this nation. Um, the fact is, if you go to someone and say, hey, Asian Americans are Americans, too. Uh, you know, we're people just like you. We, we love our kids, et cetera, et cetera. And then that person is struggling, uh, pessimistic, mentally ill, even. Uh, one of the, the things that really struck me, and I've been trying to translate this to people, is that half of the attacks against Asian Americans in New York City have been uh, by people with mental illness. Um, and so when, when we go around and say, look, you know, we should stop Asian hate, which we should, um, you're, you're in some cases talking about people that 
are not rational, are not lucid, and should be in environments that uh, are giving them much different levels of support and medication and, and other things. Um, and so we're treating everyone as if they're rational actors. And the problem is that people are getting progressively irrational. And it's being driven by a lot of things, but it's being driven most prominently, in my opinion, by this mindset of scarcity that's winning. Um, and I think an organization like the Asia Society could help counteract it. Um, if you're a business leader and you're looking to counteract it, this to me is the answer, is that we have to actually introduce a sense and reality of abundance in America. Has Andrew Yang persuaded New York City Democrats that he can bring about this sense of abundance? We will know after June 22nd, the last day of voting in the city's primary. Thank you for listening to Asia In-Depth. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or YouTube, and check out past episodes on our show page at asiasociety.org slash podcasts. I'm Matt Schiavenza. See you next time.